My Mum Made Me, the show about the wonderful and sometimes the weird ways in which our mums make us who we are today. I want you to imagine that you had a mum who, at age 13 or 14, following the death of her parents, ran away to rejoin her brothers, helped raise herself, got involved with a huge number of issues with, you know, children who'd also run away from home, who were homeless, and, you know, had really matured into this sort of campaigning force. How that would make an impression on you as a child. That is exactly what we talk about with Kirsten McNeil and her mum, Morag. Morag was a wonderful, wonderful woman who has such a fortitude of spirit and a real bravery in some of the things that she has achieved. And, you know, in so many respects, it's inspired Kirsty to become the woman she is today. Kirsty is Executive Director of Policy, Advocacy and Campaigns at Save the Children, a position that she came to not long after she worked at a very senior level for Gordon Brown in government. A lot of the things which she's learned from her mum, Morag, have really sort of been channeled into what Kirsty has done both professionally and outside of work. And it was an absolute pleasure to talk to Kirsty, and you get the pleasure too. Kirsty McNeil, how the hell are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm all right. You have been sort of in the complex taking lots of calls. Talk to me about like your day to day. So I'm currently Executive Director for Policy, Advocacy and Campaigns at Save the Children, which means I do a number of things to try and change policy, change practice, change minds in children's interests. That's amazing. I mean, what a grand title as well. Like, is it something you'd have quite a lot of time? Yeah, I've been doing that for about five, six years now. Okay, awesome. Why Save the Children out of all of the other sort of organisations that you could have gone and worked for? So this might come up later when we're talking about my mum. So my mum spent sort of 20 years in the children's hearing system in Scotland, which is in Scotland, there's a process whereby the criminal justice system for young people and care hearings and all that sort of stuff is done through the same process and mm. it's designed around children's interests rather than any other kind of imperative. It's very, very, very child focused. So we've just always sort of as a family had a big focus on children and young people. And I think one of the things I learned from my mum's experiences is good and bad childhoods really follow people around yes. forever. Like yeah. you've got one shot at getting them right. So you mm. really have to focus on it. I really want to get into that because that's such an astute observation. I'm also really interested in the system that you just described in Scotland. Is that something unique to Scotland? Because it doesn't seem as familiar to kind of England. Like what's informed that and how did it kind of work? So I don't think it's completely unique to Scotland, but people do come from all over the world to look at it because normally there's a complete separation of if a child has to get taken into social care and the children's protection system versus if a kid has got into trouble. These are normally done by completely different people. The process, if you're a kid who's got into trouble in most other countries, is not very interested in looking systematically at how that happened. But Mm. the thing that's, I think, really exciting about the Scottish system is it assumes that we failed you. Mm -hmm. That if you're a 13-year-old and your life has gone off the rails, that's because adults haven't created systems that protect you and allow you to thrive. So it's a very sort of progressive, very child-focused process, which is really quite unusual that it starts with. How do we all accept that we failed and therefore what are our collective social responsibilities to sort you out thereafter? And it's run by lay people. So Mm. the social work and police officers and other people, teachers, parents come to be heard through the children's hearing system. Mm. But it's members of the so-called children's panel, which are like high level volunteers 
who do the hearings. Which is where your mum fits in. And how did she get involved? So my mum was one of those kids that was really badly failed by Mm. adults when she was younger. So she grew up with not any money at all. So life was very tough. Like the beginnings were very hard. And then she lost both her parents by 13. Wow. And was sent to Corby, which if listeners don't know, is a bit of England where everyone talks like me. So there was like a huge (laughs) migration of Scottish people for work down to Corby. And this is when she was 13. Yeah. So basically she got sent to stay with relatives, but no one told her. And this is what happens when you don't listen to children or treat them like adults or treat them as if they're capable of making decisions. She got sent to stay with relatives, but no one told her that she was expected to live there. Oh, my goodness. And so when she realised that was the expectation, she ran away and got back to Scotland by herself. And, like, we still don't know how. Wow. And like, she, no one knows how. She, she's never told you that story? No, I mean, she was really clear that she was yeah. having none of it. Yes. And she wanted back with her brother. She's got two big brothers. Yeah. So she made it back to Scotland. As I say, we still don't know how this child yeah. <laughs> crossed the country on her own. She made it back to Scotland. Then she was accommodated in an unmarried mother's home. Oh my goodness. Which she wasn't, mm. um, but had a like rotten experience there because she got to experience how people stigmatised mm. people that were unmarried mothers. And she was just putting that because that was the single sex accommodation mm. that they had that was deemed safest for her as you know a teenage girl. Yeah. Um, yeah. But got very angry at how people treated her because of what they thought her life was like and how they treated people that were in that accommodation with her. So she fought to get out of that because the thing she always wanted was to be back with her brothers. Yes. So eventually she was able to move back in with her two big brothers who themselves were children who'd just been through this devastating loss of their mum. Gosh, I mean, that takes such strength of character in anyone, let alone a child. And did you learn these things as a child or as an adult from your mum? As a child I had the gist of it Mm. so I had the gist of it and probably in retrospect I think she would say and I would say that I was probably introduced to some of that a bit too early Mm. because one thing she was really fixated on was like you should stick in at school and work hard because you might have to be a survivor Mm. like I was a survivor and that's one of the words that she would always use about herself so you might have to work really hard to take care of yourself but also she did this very deliberate sort of weaving of networks around us so Mm. there was just this enormous group of adults who felt like responsible for us so she was very 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 aware of her own mortality yeah and it sounds like that was the sort of the placing and development of adults around you was intentional Mm. as a sort of safety net almost yeah and it was really explicit and we sort of felt it so when she died Mm. it's like she has spent decades like sort of laying these threads that connect us to other people so that when we need to pull on them they'll be there and they were I mean so her funeral was enormous of all these people who felt very 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 invested in me and my sister and felt very part of our lives and that they were sort of responsible for us somehow and when we were clearing out the house after she died I like I got like 20 cards for my driving test which is not a remotely relevant or important thing in someone's life but all these adults were like, well, if that's what the Wade's doing now, then that's the thing that's important Yes. now. But it wasn't sort of, it wasn't acquisitive in the sense of like, everyone needs to look after you. It was very, everyone needs to look after everyone. Yeah. So she would sort of tout out my grand. So like, if there were family friends who had kids who didn't have grandparents, she'd like, well, they don't have one. Mm. So you need to share yours. 
So there's all these kids that would get like presents from Gran, their Christmas present from Gran, but it wasn't their Gran, it was my Gran. Because wow. she just had the sense that like everyone should get to feel part of things yeah. and take care of each other. And she'd almost, forgive me for saying, but it sounds like she's almost built this ginormous version of her own family and shared that love, which is just so powerful. And I should have asked you at the beginning, for the sake of people listening, um, just tell us a little bit about your mum, her name, and paint a bit of a mental picture, if that's okay. So she's called Morag. She was very sort of fierce in all the best ways. So she was fiercely loyal. Mm. And again, when she died, it was sort of extraordinary like the number of people who said, I've lost my best friend. Like I've never encountered someone who had that many friends and that real capacity mm. for friendships. She was fiercely loyal, fiercely loving and very sort of intense in that and intentional and explicit mm. in that. If she thought something was wrong, she was fiercely angry yeah. Yeah. about that and got involved. Clearly. Got stuck in. And I'm saying this because I know you, but it's really interesting for me as someone who knows you as one of your friends through hearing you talk about your mum this way and certainly those beginnings, see how your sense of fairness and justice and kind of activism has come through. How much of it is informed by what you've just said and sort of Morag's own experiences and the way she raised you versus perhaps your dad or kind of other influences and this broader family that you're talking about? So I don't think there's any doubt that I wouldn't do my job if it wasn't for my mum. So... The key thing that she gave me was not just that some things are right and wrong. She had a very, very clear sense of right and wrong and what your obligations are to other people and what their obligations are to you. Mm. So she was quite forceful about that, right? Mm -hmm. That like, we all need to look after each other. But the key thing is that she would do things. Like if she thought something was wrong, she wouldn't just say, that's my view. Mm. Like the impulse to organise that I have absolutely comes from there, right? So there was... Like two things that happened in the papers that then were like really big deals in our life. So she read in our local paper that there was a guy that everyone sort of knew from around, like he'd be sort of knocking around the village and like everyone sort of knew him. But there was a thing in the local paper that he was homeless and that people hadn't realised that. They thought he was just a bloke who sort of kicked around the shops. But it turns out that he was sleeping out in the moors at the kind of top of town. So my mum was like, well, you need to go and find him to my dad. So my mum was like, we can't have somebody sleeping in the snow in the moors. You know, and he would have been in his 60s at that point. She was like, like, we've got a roof. He needs a roof. You need to go and find him. Mm. So then a homeless bloke moved in to our house for a bit. How did you feel as a kid? It wasn't the most surprising thing that's ever happened. (laughs) Kind of begs the question now. Yeah, it wasn't the most surprising thing that's happened because Mm. that's sort of what she was like. But also it wasn't a let's be sort of bountiful and benevolent. It was like, he needs to sleep here so that he doesn't die on the moors. Yes, yeah. But then we need to fight the council to get him a house. Yeah. Which, of course, like, single men were not top of anyone's list of... Did did he end up getting a house? He did. And that's thanks to Morag? Yeah, so... Wow. Because she read something in the paper, but as the other people would say, oh, that's sad. Mm. And she was like, right, you're getting on your coat, off you go. Yeah. And then the other thing that she read when I was much younger, and that ended up being quite a big bit of our childhood, was... There was a um, hospital in Glasgow that didn't have a laser. There'd been some Mm. pioneering treatment for cancer that required a laser and there was no hospital in Glasgow that had it. She was like, well, that can't be right. Let's just raise money and buy it. So she then spent years, she set up a charity to fundraise for this thing. Wow. Which as they went on for years and like I spent years kind of like manning stalls at tambolas and all that sort of stuff at the back of like halls to raise money for that. But 
like through that she just she decided that Taggart let Mark McManus from Taggart would be a really good <laughs> endorser. Yeah, yeah. So she's like, let's just be best friends with Taggart then. Amazing. And so like, I spent quite a lot of my childhood, as I say, handing out tickets for tombolas <laughs> while Taggart <laughs> spoke to the assembled masses about why they had to like club together That's to get this laser. And obviously I'm kind of sort of rushing to the conclusion, which I'm hoping is a hopeful one. She got the money and the laser's mm. now in place. Oh, yeah. And how much money are we talking? I mean, that would have been tens of thousands. So this wow. is kind of the sort of late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. So sort of the equivalent of hundreds of thousands, if not more today. But I mean, the, when she put her mind to something, it did yeah, it happened. happen, right? So this guy got a house, the yeah. hospital got lasers. Like when she wanted something to happen, she'd make it happen. So we've got the sort of the kind of morag of your childhood and we've got Morag's childhood. Are you able to say a little bit about the in-between bits? So sort of how did she go from running back from Corby to, you know, the more that we've just heard about. So she did a number of things. So she worked in a solicitor's firm at the same time as she, so she did that kind of during the weekend and the weekends. She worked in a butcher's. She sold ham to Billy Connolly once. So she was very <laughs> excited about that. It's a memorable moment. Yeah. yeah. She spent some time working in London, a sort of half grocer, half department store mm-hmm. on the Strand. So she used to box up the stuff for Downing Street. So she did oh, wow. Ted Heath's toilet paper deliveries. <laughs> um, so she had some time in London. Just toilet paper? Yeah. She had some time in London, which she didn't much like, to be honest. She was pleased to be home, I think. Mm. So she had that time and then she came back to Glasgow and she was working, as I say, for lawyers in the cash department, Mm. which is where she met my dad. And your dad is, now I get this wrong, I would say he's a lawyer, but he's more than just a lawyer, isn't he? Because the system is a little bit different and he's not, of of course, just a lawyer. Yeah, so he was a solicitor when he Mm. met my mum in the same firm and then went on to be the Scottish equivalent of a barrister, so an Mm. advocate. Uh, Mm. So he did that and has retired now. Wow, that's fantastic. So the obvious question to ask, and you've started to paint a picture of this already, is how have these things that you just talked about influenced you? But I'm just going to kind of praise it. You have this, you know, fantastically persuasive, I'm assuming, father who is an advocate. You have this woman, Morag, who just gets stuff done. And I mean, I can see both of those things clearly in you. But again, like when you were sort of coming of age as a sort of young adult in your sort of mid-twenties, let's say, were you aware of those influences? Was it as clear as that? Or is that something you've reflected on kind of later in life? I think there was two things that were explicit. So my dad was brought up in Glasgow Mm. and my mum was brought up in a place called Bonhill, which is a much smaller kind of village. And she would be quite explicit about kind of city sensibilities and country sensibilities. Mm-hmm. She thought it was a great gift that we had both. Yeah. And it felt we sort of felt streetwise and comfortable in Glasgow, but also that sense of you are deeply embedded in a community and accountable to it. So that mm. sense of like, these are your people mm. and whatever you do in life, you're supposed to deliver for your people mm. came from that kind of duality. So she was very explicit about that. And then the class dynamic of their marriage was like as I say like my mum grew up with nothing and my dad was the first generation in his family to go to university but he went to university yes yeah and that became an incredibly accomplished um, lawyer and solicitor as well again were you aware of that dynamic as a kid were either one of you and your sister aware of that dynamic as a kid yeah very and I say my mum was like quite explicit about it in a really helpful Mm. way in that she was just so she was very involved in politics from a different political tradition than my own but like she was just very she was very fearless yeah and i think if you've had a really 
set of like tough knocks in mm. your early childhood, mm. you might not have that as what happens to you. But like it, as it turned her into this like really sort of ferocious sort of warrior person mm. who just because adults had failed her, right, and people with power and status had failed her, mm. she was just never frightened by someone because they had money or because they had a job title or because they were famous or yeah. because so that sort of sense of. Like, there is nobody better than you, but there's no one worse than you either. Yes. So this just, like, really explicit sort of fierce egalitarianism of, yeah. like, someone has to prove to you why they're in the room, not the other way around. So, like, there shouldn't ever be a room that you feel frightened to go into. And, like, when I started taking up debating, everyone, like, assumed that was because of my dad's influence. Because, mm. like, he had done debating at university. Right. And then, obviously, he did sort of that in the courtroom. And everyone assumed that was my dad. And, actually, my mum's sort of sense of... Like, have a go, make the argument. Yeah. Like, you don't need to apologise for being in any room. As I say, mm. other people might have to explain mm. why they've got there. And actually, if someone's very wealthy or very powerful, not only is there no causal relationship between yes. that and their talent, it might be the opposite. Yes, indeed. And that they might have to explain to you what justifies their seat around a table. As it often is, not mentioning any name, Jacob's, Jacob Rees Moggs. And what a wonderful gift for any parent to give their child that sense of perspective and also kind of inner confidence as well you talk about the i guess lessons some explicit some sort of implied that morik has given you or, or kind of taught you how much of that do you bring into your current role like do you sort of reference you know some of the experiences that she had as someone who's defending child rights as an adult some of the sort of the lessons that you've just spoken about as well does that sort of play kind of practically in what you do today in your work yeah it does i say both that sort of sense of fearlessness about like one day so we have lots and lots of partners across the country that deal with families who are really at the sharp end of the mm. cost of living crisis and so my job might be one day you're in a food bank and the next day you're in parliament and the mm. day after that you're speaking at sort of davos or the united nations or whatever mm. and that sort of sense of that people are people and there's interesting people everywhere and there's Egypt's everywhere and like mm. you, you won't be able to tell that mm. by the surroundings. You'll be able to tell that by being inquisitive and interested in people. That's definitely part of my sort of everyday practice at work. But as I say, also that sense of like things can go really badly wrong yeah. if we fail children. Yeah. That will still be showing up because yeah. clearly things that happened to my mum in childhood were still showing up in our family life. Yes. Decades after that, and yeah. I see this very sort of intentional weaving together of, like, you need protective systems mm. around you. And it so happens she didn't die until I was in my late 30s and mm. I didn't need them, but mm. I felt the benefit of them. Clearly, clearly. A big part of your job professionally, but also what you do, I think, as a person is bring people together. Try and build consensus, try and create change. How would Morag have done that? It's sort of difficult to think of a specific example, but is there a sort of difference in kind of the way you do it or the way she might have done it? Like, I remember meeting, I had the great fortune, of course, of meeting her at your wedding. And I just, just that kind of memory is seared into my memory because she was just such a force of nature and really held a kind of room in all the ways that you've described. But I'm guessing, you know, the way she might have brought people together may have been a little bit different. I don't know. Is that a fair kind of observation? I think the people that she found it most difficult to work with were like people who were indifferent. Like she didn't mind if you disagreed or you were different, mm. but if you seemed to not care about people mm. or were indifferent what happened to them, she would find that quite difficult to make common cause with. But like 
as I say, so she was a member of the Scottish National Party mm. my whole life. So not just a supporter of independence and the referendum, like a committed, yes. lifelong, yeah. hardcore activist, like everyone that I grew up calling auntie, apart from my actual aunties, like <laughs> everyone that I grew up calling auntie is from the SNP. Yeah. Like all my earliest memories are of being like plonked under tables at meetings and told to fold leaflets and um, <laughs> like, you know, these were the wilderness years for the SNP, right? It's not like it is yeah. now. Like this is central belt Scotland, yeah. like absolute labour fiefdoms. You know, and that was like one of the big causes of her life. Yes. But the fact that I picked a different path, yeah, a different political party, a different political yeah. tradition and in the referendum was very actively yeah. involved I don't think she found difficult. I think that was a source of real sort of pride. And I was going to say, I was going to say, she must have been just given what you've done in your life. Some of which you talked about. Of course, you worked in government as well. She must have been incredibly proud of you. I think they all were. That sort of community that she built around me. Yeah. It's even though they disagreed, and like the referendum got very toxic. Like it was very divisive, aggressive, unpleasant. But not in our family, right? I'm, I'm really proud of our little family. It's like showing what is possible, right? So yes. this was like the cause of my mum's life, the cause yeah. of my grand's life, the cause of my dad's life. Oh, yeah. We were living together during the referendum. Like, so we went up to stay for the campaign. I like worked on Gordon's very well received speech that he did mm. the night before yeah. polling. And, you know, people can debate the impact it had, but it clearly had an impact. Some. Yes. Who knows whether it was determinant? But, you know, my gran called the next morning so my gran and my mum spoke like every day and my gran called the next morning and she was like i know that she was involved in that <laughs> bloody speech and i don't want to talk to her i don't want to talk to her today but, but i know mm. and i think she did very well and she should be proud and like that is that's sort of wonderful. how it was and like that's so wonderful. we all went out for lunch that morning after where you know i had been part of destroying something that really really yeah. really mattered yeah to her but it didn't matter anywhere near as much to her or to me as our relationship mattered yeah. and our relationships were like all square, despite that being the thing that, you know, mattered more to her than any other like cause or issue. Mm. So I think she finds it very easy to work with people who are passionate, even if they disagree, as do mm. I. Mm. I think she finds people who are indifferent to the fate of other people completely bewildering Maybe. or maddening. Yeah. And I'm kind of interested, in addition to the kind of wonderfully close and understanding bonds that it sounds like every member of your family had with each other, were there sort of little activities of decompression during that period? So, for example, was it, all right, I can hate you, fucking hate you, but let's have a cup of tea and, and everything will be fine? Like, were there sort of little things that you did together just to sort of, you know, go from being at each other's political throats proverbially to kind of being that family? Again. I wouldn't say there were sort of like techniques or tools. Mm. I think it's just like in our family, like always you were talking about what the issues of the day were, but I say crucially what you would do about them. And as long as you're doing something, mm. it sort of didn't matter if you disagreed on what the right answer was, as long as you seemed committed with integrity to mm. pursuing an answer. I don't think during that period we felt we had to sort of do anything together beyond just like the normal stuff. So as I say, like the morning after the referendum, where I had gone to bed because it's like just like what it's going to be is going to be yeah but my husband had stayed up all night with my mom and then come and woken me up to tell me the results so like my mom and roger were much more exhausted yeah that day than i was so me and my dad had both gone to bed and we just all went there for lunch and like 
It's like, okay, well, that's... And always kind of, yeah, back to... Well, not even that it was away from normal ever by the sounds of it, but it was definitely back to normal. What about the moments of levity? Like, what did you do, like, behaviour-wise, that would make your mum just kind of rile and be really angry? Apart from, of course, being a member of the Labour Party and, you know, (laughs) pro-union. So I'm not sure there were bits of sort of naughtiness that I think she found surprising. Because I remember she always used to say things to me that I was just like... Who do you think I... Do you know what I mean? So, like, from when I was about 11 and going to parties, she'd say, no, don't put your drink down in case someone will spike it. I'm like, what drink? What are you talking about? Like, I am a living. I'm, like, really... Like, I'm a swat. Like, I don't think you need to worry. I don't think she thought that I did anything particularly outlandish. Like, you know, we had, like, normal Mm. fights about, like, kind of tidying up and all that sort of stuff. Mm. But, yeah, I I think she probably had a more... Well, I mean, obviously, by definition, she, like, cross-country on her own when she was 13. Mm. I think she had a sort of freer teenage life than I did and had to grow up much earlier Mm. and assumed that I think as she assumed that I would be going out or like never played truant like not a single day you were the golden child I mean genuinely I was just like very sort of well behaved and interested in things so it's like no I'd quite like and that was that the same with your sister as well yeah I mean I think my sister so I don't think my mum would ever have described herself as a feminist but my not because she was hostile to it. I just don't think mm. it's language that she would sort of no, particularly sure. adopt. But like my sister decided when she was about three or four that she was going to be a doctor. Wow. And everyone kept saying, oh, a nurse. And she went, no, no, like a doctor. Right. And I say like, there was like no money at that point. Yeah. But my mum was like, right, if that's what's going to happen, that's what's going to happen. We'll make it happen. Yeah. So my sister was like really clear really early on. So it's, I mean, it, this sounds like we were sort of like unbelievably square and had no friends. <laughs> never had any fun, <laughs> which is not true. But yeah. I, think, I think my mum thought my fun might be a bit wilder. Yes. Than in fact it was. Like I didn't sneak out to go anywhere. Like I was perfectly clear where I wanted to go. I wanted to go to gigs and festivals. Yeah. And yeah. parties of people that she knew. So my mum like... My entire year at school called her Auntie Mo. And my entire, my sister's entire year at school. That's amazing. And so like everyone knew her and therefore like I was never going anywhere with anyone that she didn't know because she was just like a real magnet for our friends. And like we always had many parties. So Hogmanay is yeah. a much bigger deal in Scotland than Christmas is. And every year, like different people at school would do different parties. So something someone would do like the end of exams parties, mm. someone would do the summer party or whatever. And we always did the Hogmanay party and my mum would be having a party at the same time. Mm. So my mum would have like her mates in one room mm. and my mates were all to be there. And like, and there was quite a lot of sort of nice sort of going between. So like quite a lot of my friends like played guitar and whatever and would go in and Gorgeous. sing with them. So yeah, I think she thought that I might be doing things that were a bit wilder than they were. So it's not, I say it's not like we were And did she... Sad. Did she share at the time, and we should emphasise at the time, because of course this has drastically changed, your love of Morris's music? (laughs) (laughs) Got to be really careful about what we say now. (laughs) So that was true for both me and my sister. So we both had like long-term relationships there. I don't think she was ever particularly interested in the music, but she was always very supportive of whatever Mm. we wanted to do. Mm. So... So she'd drive you to gigs? She'd drive us yeah. to gigs. If we were getting picked up for gigs, there would always be like a hot water bottle and because you'd be sweaty and you'd be in a moth pit. So there would be like a hot water bottle, a blanket and some diary and brew in the back of the car. Uh, so she was like very, yeah. yeah, so she was like very, have parties, yeah. go to festivals, yeah. camp, like do whatever. But I think she was as horrified as the rest of us by the sort of disgusting turn that his particular politics took. And she like, 
I remember that, and like shout out to Mr Lockhart if he ever hears this, I had one teacher at school who was very accommodating. Well, I had, I had a number of teachers, but there was one in particular who was very accommodating of my burgeoning politics. Yes. And there was, for reasons that continue to escape me, Glasgow City Council had in its heritage department appointed an active member of the BMP <gasps> to lead history education in museums for children. What? Which I don't think was a very good idea, as no. you might imagine. And there was going to be a protest during the school day and Mr Lockhart, which was quite cool because he was a deputy head, yeah. Mr Lockhart was like, if you want to go, you can go because wow. you seem to have thought seriously about this yeah. and this is part of your education, right? Because yeah. this offends you as someone studying history. Mm. So if your mum will take you and you will get back and you're only away for a period, mm. that can happen. So my mum was like, all right, cool, now we're going to go and protest outside this museum and try to get a Nazi sacked. So she was <laughs> sort of as horrified as anyone by this kind of like terrible descent of this otherwise very interesting artist like who knows what's happened and i was gonna say if, the, if there's one woman that both of us know who could get it done and get you know kind of make sure glasgow city council wasn't run by absolute nutters it is morag kirsty wants to talk a bit more about morag in morag in a second i also want to tell you a little bit about my mom mm-hmm. as well so she's called Teresa. she sends me a wonderful voice note at whatsapp every friday and i've been starring some of them because they're just lovely and gorgeous this is one she sent in June this year. I'm going to play it for you. And I'm not going to sort of give you any context, but it's about a minute long. Just sort of take it in and give me your reaction. But there is a question here, which is, I'm really interested how Morag would have processed this information. Hi, I'm wondering if you are sailing today. All moms. All moms wonder if you're sailing today. I mean, yeah, what an opener. Because the weather is warmer and more sunshine. And you are in Robin Hood's Bay. Okay. I booked in for the vaccination as soon as I could. I could not book in on Friday. I tried. And I'm having this vaccination for Lemon, for Emma, for Adam, for yourself and for your dad. Just to add a bit of context, my mum still describes herself as an anti-vaxxer and proudly so. And so this is June last year. So just to put it into context, like she'd waited mm, not quite 18 months, but nigh on to get the vaccine because she was so anti-vax. And apparently she later told me the thing which swung it for her was not me or my sister pleading with her. (laughs) It was she read an article where a cat died of COVID and Lemon, who she referenced first, I should add, is our cat. So she's her reasoning, just to repeat, was I'm getting the vaccination for Lemon, the cat, not you kids. And the new Delta variant, don't know what's going to happen with that. If there will be a third vaccination, I don't know. It will definitely be on Wednesday of this week. Oh, Paul, I love you. Thank you for your patience. Enjoy your holidays. Bye. So, first reactions. So, I think my mum would probably empathise with the fact that your mum loves lemon because you love lemon. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So if it's important to you, it's important to her, which mm. is very touching. I mean, she died before the pandemic. I don't think she'd have empathised very much with mm. the anti-vax sentiment. Mm, mm, mm. 
But I think she'd celebrate that someone's like changed and chosen to do something for people that they love. I think she'd think that was great. That's a very lovely and diplomatic answer. What's your gut reaction? <laughs> I mean, I think putting animals before people is quite a strange... Yes. I mean, I don't think it should be awful to no. animals, but I think the prioritisation of them is a bit yes. peculiar. Yeah. She announces each WhatsApp voice message with, Hi, Paul, it's mum... I know, but never mind. <laughs> hello, before she says anything else, she says, hello to Lemon, <laughs> hello to Adam, in that order. And I, I sort of, Adam, I think, got a bit offended as my partner. Got a bit of, anyway. But yeah, so more, <laughs> more would be sympathetic and empathetic, which is obviously, you know, great. Because I think my mum needs people to be that around her. We're slightly running out of time, but I just wanted to ask one more question. What is the kind of lasting memory you have of more. I can, what I mean by that is maybe it's some and a time from your childhood or from your adulthood or a particular sort of memory of a particular time and why. And I know that's a big question to end with, but she's seared in my memory, like I said, from that one time I met her and you had a sort of a whole childhood and adulthood with her. So I'm kind of interested how she remembered in your mind. If I could maybe give you two, and the mm. reason I think they're interesting and illustrative is I don't remember either of them because they didn't happen to me. Mm. But as soon as I was told about them, I'm just like, of course, that's what happened. So one is she ran a guest house. So after she stopped kind of working for lawyers, she ran a guest house. And we still get Christmas cards from people that stayed. I mean, like, I mean, who sends Amazing. a Christmas card to someone that they stayed in the B&B of? But there we have it. <laughs> it's this tremendous capacity to make friends. Um, and for a, a while, she had various young Rangers football players mm. living with us because she had sort of child safeguarding expertise from the children's panel and because the training ground was right near us. And after she died, someone that had stayed with us told a story about the fact that he had been wearing a Northern Ireland football top, which was mistaken in town as a Celtic top. Mm. And so got chased by a bigot. Oh my God. And ran all the way home and ran up our driveway. And my mum saw what was happening and that someone was shouting at him and she came out banging a pan. (laughs) And it was like, what is this? What is this woman with a pan going to be as a match for like bigoted thugs? But as soon as he said it, I was like, yeah, I bet my mum chased away a bigot with a pan because like you were in Um, her house and she wasn't having it. And then my dad, when I said I was doing this, was reminding me, but this was when I was little, so I don't remember this Mm. happening. But she had ordered tiles for a bathroom Mm. and she said I don't know how many I need and they said well just take this amount and if you need more there'll always be more so you could just come back so she found out she was too short and she did go back Mm. and they said oh actually we don't have them anymore we've jacked up the price Mm. and my mum occupied the shop (laughs) so she was so outraged that she just sat on the floor and when anyone came in the tile shop, she said, I wouldn't buy from here if I were you, they're liars. Oh my goodness. And it turns out there was resolution. So mm. they said, well, like, what will it take for you to go away? <laughs> she said, well, I'll need my tiles. Yeah. And so they said, right, well, we'll get tiles delivered, but you have to go away and stop tearing all our customers. And she went like, fine. And, like, obviously she was like reasonable. All she wanted was resolution. And then the next day, my family got a visit from the police <gasps> because overnight, the tile shop had been ransacked. <laughs> right, so bear Completely in mind, unconnected. Like my mum worked for lawyers. Yes. My dad was a lawyer. Yes. And there was a police car at the front of our mm. house mm. saying, 
we understand you've got a grievance against <laughs> the owner of this tile shop. <laughs> Have you got any information about where you were last night? And like, obviously, my mum yes. does not ransack no, a tile shop. No. But I don't think that is like the most surprising thing in my life. <laughs> like, no. it's like, yeah, of course, my mum occupied a shop. I think I would love her no less if she had ransacked that child shop, but clearly she did. But like, oh, what a force of nature and what a wonderful set of stories to end on. Kirsty, thank you so much for sharing all of these wonderful stories from Batmorag. Thank you for having me.